you have to be more like water as a salesperson. You got to kind of take shape where you're poured. You know, you, you're going to be poured into each account that you're poured into. You're going to have to have and take on different attributes. Hi, welcome. This is Zian here, and my guest today is Rob Waddell, a sales leader at TCS, Tata Consultancy Services, a global leader in business and technology services. I had a great conversation with Rob around many key topics relevant to enterprise sellers today. Without further ado, let's get started. Rob, thanks for joining the call today. It's uh, you know looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks, Zian. I'm happy to be here. So, Rob, to uh, to kind of uh, get the things rolling, uh, you know, greatly appreciate if you can share or talk to us about your professional journey so far. Uh, connect the dots for us, please. Yeah, sure. And you know, I think what I've been fortunate in my professional journey is <clears throat> I had a good mix of experiences. I had a good mix of selling for software and technology companies and a good mix of selling for services companies. And I've had a good mix of culture in slightly different roles throughout my career. And I think in in totality, when I combine all the experiences that I had, you know, I, I think it, you know, after 25 years, it, it left me with a good block of skills that was helpful. Um, it started out um, working for Unisys. I, I, when I got out of college, Unisys offered a, a program where basically you could, they basically just sent you back to school to taught you IT. And um, I started out actually as a going to be a pre-sales person here teaching me how to configure mainframes. And I thought, you know, I don't think in 1995 it's the best thing for me to learn how to do this. So I kind of switched over to sales after about eight months. And, um, and then I sold Unisys's technology systems and um, their hardware and networking equipment for five years. And I switched over to the Unisys services side and started selling SAP based stuff. And that led me to get to know people at SAP. And then after 11 years, I left Unisys and went and worked directly for SAP as a sales rep selling their, their software and their educational services and things like that. And, you know, that's where I really learned how to, what I consider to be a, a true professional selling method. Unisys's sales culture was a little different. You know, Unisys was not a, the big brand in the industry. Actually, in the 90s, Unisys was kind of known as the company that's kind of dying and not doing well. So I had to sell, you know, learning how to sell at Unisys when you're not, you know, the big wig, when you're not the top brand, when you're not selling the hot new technology. You know, I learned a lot about how to sell under that situation. Um, but Unisys's sales process were not really defined that well. Um, and then I went to SAP and it was the exact opposite. SAP was the hot, you know, big ERP software in, you know, early 2000s. And, and their selling process was incredibly professional, incredibly rigid. And that's where I really learned how, you know, what true professional consultative selling is in this industry. Um, and that was very helpful to me. And, you know, and I also got a lot of domain knowledge in the manufacturing space while I was at SAP. Um, and then from there, I went to PTC, another software company, and sold, you know, engineering systems and PLM systems. And in that role, I was slightly different. I wasn't a sales rep. I was part of the sales support department and what's called a value engineer. Um, and what I was, my role in that is I go and meet with clients and build business cases with them. And that's, you know, and that, through that experience, I learned how to monetize the value of a software product and it was a really i think valuable lesson for me because i i, I kind of grabbed i went to that job at ptc because i got tired after 13 some years of customers telling me the reason i'm not going to buy from us is they don't see the value 
And customers always wanted to really try to monetize and create hard dollar business cases. And it was hard to do. So that's part of the reason why I took that job at PTC is I, I like the opportunity to be able to um, really learn a method and process for monetizing the value of an IT project. And that's what I did. I, was, I would basically work with a lot of the manufacturing companies in the Northeast and I build business cases for them, you know, and it's all about just removing non-value added time from processes and connecting that to the right operational metrics and connecting those metrics to financials and, and building business cases that way. So that was a really good experience at PTC because it really, when I went back and after I left PTC, after four years, I went to a company called Yash. I stayed in the SAP ecosystem, but I went back to being a direct salesperson. But having the ability to build business cases with clients. I didn't stop doing that. Um, I, I kept, you know, I just added that to my sales method with engaging with customers because they liked it. You know, instead of me just giving them a proposal, I'd give them a proposal on a business case just because I had learned how to do all that. And um, and I would do it as a value add. And I, it really helped me differentiate myself, not just my company, which I think is a big thing to, to do as a salesperson. And then from there, after Yash, and again, when I went back to Yash, that was my step out of the software world. Um, after having six years in at SAP and PTC selling software, I kind of decided, you know, because at that point I had six years of software sales experience and 11 years of of um, Unisys space, which is more like hardware and services around hardware experience. I decided that I liked services better. I just felt like selling services to me was really what I consider to be real consultative. Selling software is more like a pushy kind of sale. You you don't have a choice. You've just got to sell your software. If you're selling services, you can sell anything. I can sell Oracle. I can sell SAP. So I, I made that decision, and that's why I went and worked for Yash. And that also kind of connected me to um, the larger world of outsourcing. You know, Yash was kind of a little a, a niche SAP outsourcer, but you know they had based all their operations were based in India, and that's really when I got my first you know, taste of, you know, offshore based outsourcing type selling. And after three years at Yash, Wipro came calling and, you know, that's when I made, that's when I met UZ and made the commitment to really go work for a large, you know, tier one consulting company. And since then, that's where I've been between, you know, Wipro and now TCS. That's what I've been selling is, is large um, IT services, consulting contracts, outsourcing, analytics, ERP, the whole suite of um, any really IT function that an IT shop has, I can now sell at companies like Wipro and where I am now at TCS. So um, that to me was kind of the final step in the career journey that I had. I, I wanted to get involved in these big, large outsourcing type deals. And obviously at TCS, you know, we're the, the top, you know, one of the top vendors in the world at that. So for me, this is kind of it. This, this is the the whole journey I've had now after 25 years. I'm kind of where I want to be. Um, don't really have any ambition to do much more. So um, that's kind of been my journey so far. Great, and uh, that's that that is an awesome journey, uh, Rob. And looks like you have become an expert at what you do, right? I mean, as simple as that. I also like the motivation that you shared from changing from one company to going to another company. So that's that's a pretty good story there. Yeah, and I kind of got lucky with a little bit of that. You know, I really, I was surprised when SAP came and recruited me, um, even though I had been selling SAP implementation services at, at Unisys. It was kind of, 
I didn't think that I really fit what they were looking for, but when they offered it, and I was kind of worried about how I do there, but I thought, okay, well, you know what? I really do believe it'll be good for my resume. I think I'll learn a lot. And that's exactly what happened. But yeah, it was kind of, it worked out well. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, so Rob, I would love to, uh, you know, very interested to know uh, when you start a new gig, right? Um, you know, when you move from one company to another company, what do you think you need to do in the first 90 days or so, so that you lay down the foundation for an awesome sales career at that organization? Right? What What do you do, uh, Rob? Yeah, well, the first thing I think you do is it's not even in the first 90. I think the, the best way to set yourself up for success when you're changing companies really happens during the interview process. And once, you know, you feel like, you know, when you're interviewing for jobs, I always say, I always say there's a switch that happens. It goes from them, you know, it starts off with they're evaluating you and they're deciding if they want you. But when they decide that they do, the switch that occurs is all the leverage then falls to you. And I think it's important to realize that because when you have that leverage after they've decided that you're the person they want to hire, you know, I don't tell them right away that I'm ready to go work for them. What I do is say, okay, let's now talk about the territory. Let's talk. And I go all the way in and get commitments from, you know, the hiring manager that, you know, I'm going to have certain accounts that I know are pretty strong accounts in my territory. And that for me has always been really helpful. I've always come into these jobs with kind of an upfront contract with my hiring manager that I'm not going to just get the 15 accounts that weren't buying anything the last five years. I want accounts that are active. I want accounts that are that I know in the industry are strong or that I already have relationships with. And that to me is, you know, been very helpful to do because when you get that kind of agreement with your hiring manager, it changes the nature of your relationship with the hiring manager. And I found hiring managers actually like it because they look at it as, you know, he's smart. You know, he's thinking about how to make himself successful all the time. And that's kind of what they want. So that's the one thing I think will be a really helpful thing to do. And as far as when you get into the first 90 days, the thing that I always say is, you know, your sales leadership's always going to tell you what I call is the stock marching orders, which is go find a big deal, you know, focus on large deals, focus on large deals, get the highest level meetings you can. I think in your first 90 days or really even your first six months, I also think it's important to just sell something. Just get your foot in the door somewhere because that process of selling something you know, will teach you all the things you need to know about your own company. You'll like to learn all the back office processes for how the CRM systems set up new clients, for how you get pricing approved and contracts approved. And, you know, you get to learn about the sales support department and, you know, how they work and, you know, what kind of talent is there. And, you know, that's one of the things I always try to do in that first 90 days or 60 days, even is just, even it's just a small staff, just sell something. You know, because a lot of salespeople, I mean, I think our, our actual, our sales leader, um, Amit Bajab at, at TCS, he, he's really interested in stats and he's he's really cool with with um, stats. And one of the stats that he observed in the industry is for 90% of all salespeople that switch jobs, almost all of them or, and more than half of them literally will go the entire year and not sell anything. Some go two years before they really start selling things. So, you know, just knowing that if you can then just get something up on the board in six months, a lot of the sales leadership will notice that. So that's the other big thing I think you can do. Those two things, I would say, are probably the two biggest things I've always done when I switch companies is really just trying to get something done quickly, even if it's not big. It usually isn't big, but, you know, you'll just learn so much in that process that when the real good one comes through, you'll be ready to do it. 
So I think that's what I would say the two big things I do are. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nothing like having a quick win, right? As soon as you get started. So that's as yeah. well. And the other thing it does, though, is it really, it really serves as a dry run for when the good one comes through. Because what you don't want to have happen is when the good one comes through, if you're doing everything the first time, it's the first time you're asking for pricing, it's the first time you're working with your pre-sales department, chances are you're not going to do a great job at it. And if you don't do a great job at it, you run the risk of losing the deal you could have won just for being too slow. And because customers get, you know, customers don't measure value the way we measure value. You know, customers really measure value in terms of what they can count. And they really only can count speed and money. So if you're going to take, you know, a long time to get proposals done, if you're going to get a long time to get pricing improved, you can lose a deal that you could have won. That's why I think it's important to just do something small first. Uh, Rob, in your opinion, uh, you know, what, what, what do you think are the key attributes of a successful uh, enterprise salesperson, in your opinion? Yeah, it's, an, it's a great question. And I, I think the first thing I think about is it's changed over the years. I, I think initially it was what I would call the traditional stuff that everyone hears. It's the aggressive personality really focused on relationship and, and building relationships in ways, you know, going to lunch with people and you know, really just trying to become their personal friend. And, you know, that was kind of like what I'll call the traditional attributes of salespeople, you know lots of activity really focused on getting meetings and pipeline building and things like that. I think it's changed. I think what's happening now is you have to be more like water as a salesperson. You got to kind of take shape where you're poured. You know, you're going to be poured into each account that you're poured into. You're going to have to have and take on different attributes. Some CIOs may want you to just be a meeting setter. And the only thing they're really interested in is you just scheduling meetings where you're going to bring all your subject matters experts in and practice directors in and they, they kind of just view you that way and then so that's the way you need to be but other cios may want to actually speak to you and want you to you know be more involved actually you know help them write their business cases help them develop presentations you know really offer them guidance on how they're organizing the project evaluations and things like that so in that case you know in that situation you need to be more like a project manager and a consultant so I think that's the kind of thing that I'm changing is now is, is there's not just one attribute to have. You kind of got to be willing to look at each situation and, and have lots of different attributes. You know, I, I think overall, you definitely need to be more consultative now. I think you need to be more focused on what I'll call business value messaging and really explaining to customers whether or not this is going to make or save them money, as opposed to what I would call the traditional power sales messaging I think you need to have some expertise. I think all salespeople should have their own area of expertise, kind of like what I was talking about with me. I've learned how to, you know, I have some process level expertise in the engineering world and, and PLM world. I know I can write business cases. And, you know, I do think salespeople shouldn't be afraid to actually develop some level of expertise somewhere. And I think you need more project management skills as well. Um, the other thing I, I would say is, and I think this for me is a little bit of what makes me a little bit disappointed in where the industry is going for people like us is, is I have to be more internally focused now than I am client focused. You know, I find nowadays that it's harder for me to sell internally than for me to get my clients to agree to something. You know, I find today clients take meetings and they're happy to give you a chance to help them. The problem is when I then turn around to my own company you know, that what I want to do and the solutions and the costs and the things that I'm trying to build with the customer to solve their problems. A lot of times my own company doesn't want to do that. 
So the, the amount of internal selling I have to do now is literally probably triple what it used to be. And, and I, that's, that's becomes a skill. And I think, you know, just internal selling, I would say, is a, a big attribute now that you have to be strong at, which for me, I think kind of hurts us a little bit, but it is what it is. But that's, I would say those are probably the three biggest things. I think you have to be very flexible and the attributes will change from account to account. I think you need to be much more consultative and, and project-based, project management value type messaging. I'd say that's the second one. And I think the third one is you have to be a real strong internal salesperson. You have to really be strong at, at building internal consensus on what your client's trying to do. Uh, t- tell us a little more about your current role, Rob. Um, so talk to us a little more about your role and if you can share some challenges and what's working for you. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so currently right now, I'm, I'm selling to manufacturing accounts in the Northeast. And manufacturing at my company is defined both process manufacturing, discrete manufacturing, and high-tech manufacturing. So I can sell to any of those kind of manufacturers. Our focus is large, multi-billion dollar companies. Um, and the goal is really to do the team I'm on specifically is the team that's responsible for closing hundred plus million dollar deals. So in those cases, the, the, the people in the account I'm selling to is, you know, we're always kind of, the CIO is always kind of in the center of it. But if you think about it, like a hub and spoke model, you've got the CIO in the middle, but then connected to the CIO is all the business unit leadership. You know, each, all these manufacturing companies are now organized around industry divisions. So you've got, you know, automotive industries or optic industries or communications, and, and they, they organize themselves around certain industry subgroups. And so they have the, you know, the head of each of those industry groups, you do a lot, um, you know, the, the sales head is connected to the CIO. So they're kind of, they look at their, all the other departments in the company as their customers. So that's, that forms the people that I'm focused on as well. Basically just this, this it's the IT department, and then also the heads of all the business units as well. And so that's kind of, the, the main focus of where I'm selling. And I think um, I, I would say it's, like I said, it's probably 50% of our time is spent in with the CIO and the IT department, but then the rest is spent with on, on business unit leadership. And I'm also starting to see that, you know, this concept of digital transformation, you know, there's now sometimes entire departments that aren't connected to the CIO that are focused on digital. So we sometimes are starting to see more of those what I'll call, you know, chief digital officers and things like that. So they're they're coming into the picture as well. But that's basically the, the, it's manufacturing companies, multi-billion dollar and trying to sell hundred million dollar deals. And are there any top challenges in, in your role, current role today that, that you're facing and how, how are you overcoming those challenges? Yeah, I, I think there's probably three, I would say, that I'm running into. One of the top challenges, well, we kind of already mentioned it, is the internal sell is harder than the client sell. You know, for me specifically, that's definitely a challenge for me. You know, before... You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I came to an agreement on a customer that, you know, they'd buy something for me, it would be, you know, one or two hours of phone calls and everybody in my company would say, great, yeah, let's go do it. And that doesn't happen now anymore. So like I said, I'd say that internal selling is is one challenge. The other challenge I've found is customers today are so focused and so dedicated to making consensus, to consensus-based decision-making, meaning they're involving so many people. And I actually think it's to their fault. I think customers now want to build so much consensus before they pull the trigger on an IT project. They're actually losing the ability to make good decisions. 
because what they're doing is not only are they making the having a you know 20 people that need to say yes they don't really even stack rank it so you've got 20 people that all need to agree to do something but none of those 20 people actually has seniority over the other one so you know it's not like you've got the, the cio they're one of the persons that says yes you know the business unit head in transportation industry you know that person needs to say yes too and if that person says no the cio can't over nobody can overrule over anybody so i would say that that what i'll call you know very democratic based consensus-based decision-making has become a big challenge for me. It used to be you could get, you know, two or three people on board as long as you have the CIO and the budget owner. You know, the guy who's signing the check and owns the budget, you get that person and the CIO, you're usually good to go. Now it's, you need that person, you need the CIO, you need the budget owner, you need the check signer, you need legal, you need so many people need to say yes. So that's, I'd say, the second biggest challenge. And the other third thing I'm running into, this has kind of happened recently with me, but some of our competitors are signing contracts and developing relationships with our potential customers that make it impossible to penetrate. You know, I mean, HCL's I think been doing a great job of this. I mean, HCL signs these, you know, they're big outsourcing contracts. They basically make it virtually impossible for the customer to cancel. They're really good at negotiating really strong um, termination for convenience fees. They're really strong at, you know, if they agree to certain rates and discounts, they, what they ask for in return is exclusivity. And they get customers to kind of put things in writing about having them be their exclusive strategic partner. And they're really actually defining what that means in contracts now. And, you know, I've had CIOs tell me that they just cannot give us business for the next five years because of their current contract. So I'm starting to see that a little bit. And, um, so I would say those are the three biggest things. That's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I remember the uh, the uh, IBM used to have uh, similar contracts, uh, right? It, it, sometime back. So how how are you? I, I know you answered the first uh, point as to how you are uh, overcoming the internal selling part of it. Are you able to do anything about the other two challenges, or is there anything at all in your control role there? Um, well, the internal selling, you can overcome that just by being a real hard, huge pain in the ass. But I think, but I think the consensus building, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm struggling with it still. I think the one thing that I'm learning with consensus building is, A, you, you need to be aware of it. You need to accept it. You can't try to change it at your account. And then you just kind of position yourself as the, the organizational decision-making psychologist and you just i'm constantly you got to just be talking to all of these people that you need consensus with and you find yourself saying well hey you know right now you know cio wants to do this and head of digital wants to do that and you know if you you know are okay with any one of these and maybe we can come up with a compromise and you can be the person who's seen as the consensus builder and you do a lot more what i call psychological decision-making paradigm building and that's the one thing i've found is to you know, you, you, you got to be willing to, you know, kind of play that game and, and maybe not even and also be afraid to maybe, you know, get a little political with it. You know, if you know two people, you know, aren't really big fans of each other or have, a you know, what I'll call turf issues of, you know, who's going to own what systems, you know, you don't be afraid to get involved in that, you know, and, and I, I guess that's the, the, the thing I learned with consensus building is you, you got to you can't be afraid of it. You have to just immerse yourself in it. And leverage politics, you know, and, and do it in a way that's going to make everybody happy. You know, you don't want to be, well, if, if we can all line up on this solution and these two guys who don't want to do it will feel pressure and say they want to do it. I tried that once and that didn't work. So you really just got to keep trying to get everybody to say yes. 
And the third one is kind of still new to me, and I really haven't figured out how to do that with the, the contracts. Sure. And you you brought up an interesting point. So another attribute probably for the sales guys these days is to be a lot more uh, political, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I would say that's, you know, one of the attributes of a salesperson, I would say we probably should add that one too, is you, you need to be a strong person with both your own company's internal politics and your customer's politics, because that is absolutely becoming a bigger, bigger issue in how customers make decisions is, is politics is very much coming into play. So Rob, uh, you know, many of my uh, guests who come from the other side of the table, right, people who actually buy from us have also uh, noted that they um, they are very, uh, what, what should I say, they, they also look at the culture of the organization that they are looking to uh, select, especially for large deals or long-term deals. So as as someone who's working on large deals with your existing clients, how do you ensure that they get a feel of your culture without doing it explicitly? I mean, you cannot obviously put it on a slide and show it to them, right? How, how do you do that? Are there any best practices there, Rob? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And also another absolute trend in the industry I'm seeing is our customers, especially in these large outsourcing RFPs where the process is really formalized, you know, culture is becoming a huge part of it. And the, the thing that I would say to all salespeople is, you know, you can't show and or change culture one person or slide statement at a time. You know, if, you, if your customer, if that's really important to your customers, you know, just put having a couple PowerPoint slides where you show that you have X percent diversity and all these programs designed to, you know, around inclusivity and diversity and things like that. That's not going to help you know to really to do culture you have to show culture and you know obviously you know especially during covid times when you have you know these big online presentations where you've got 30 people from the client 40 people from your company you know if you're going to say you're doing culture that you know your your team should look like that it should look like a diverse company and so the other thing I think people should realize also is that culture is not just language and color of skin. You know, culture is is a lot more than that. And I, I think you should realize that as well it is, is, you know, really understand what your customer means by culture. I mean, we'll always have some issues related to diversity and race and, and, and gender and things like that. But, you know, Customers nowadays, culture is defined by a lot more than that. Culture is defined by ways of working and, you know, how teams are being, you know, evaluating, not evaluating individuals as much and more evaluating team performance and things like that. So you need to really be aware of how customers define culture. But you, the best thing you really got to do is just show it and live it. You know, you, 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 that's where you'll, you'll do it. You're not going to do it just by putting up a slide. You know, you got to really let them see it. You know, let them see diversity, let them see differences of ideas and let them see inclusivity, let them see, you know, really healthy team, you know, incentive and team building programs and things like that. So I would just say you got to live it instead of read about it. Makes sense. Actually show it in action, right? So Rob, um, you know, we obviously, uh, all of us have had uh, deal losses that, that have been, you know, pretty close to our heart, right? Um, so are there any losses that you can, you know, t- talk to us about, especially the learnings from those recent deal losses, if you can? Yeah, I, um, 
it's kind of funny. This is one area where I will probably be a little bit out of the norm for the average salesperson because I'm really not a big believer in post-mortem loss analysis. I, I think a lot of times all you're doing is just trying to defuse bombs that have already gone off. So you probably will get a better answer to this question from someone else. Um, I've always been told, you know, someone said to me once, you know, Rob, you're not a very good loser. And I said, you're right. I said, the last thing in the world I ever want to be good at is losing. So <laughs> I, I, you know, when I lose, I tend to just let it go. I mean, unless there's something really avoidable and really obvious. But the thing I've learned is, you know, if you ask a customer why you lost, they're just going to give you a stock answer. And nine times out of 10, the reason why you lost is because you never really had a chance to win. I mean, I would say that's the one thing you can take from losing is, you know, very rarely did you lose a deal because of something you or your company did. Nine times out of 10, if you lost a deal, it was because you were never going to win it anyway. You know, and and that's OK. I, I think, you know, customers, you know, have relationships with vendors and sometimes, you know, they need to get, you know, additional input from competitive vendors to check off the shopping process. And. You know, and I, so I, I don't really torture myself over losses. I, when my boss calls me and wants me to fill out a postmortem, why we lost sheet, I'm always really bad at that. So I, I don't, I probably, you probably do get a better answer from someone else, but I, I tend to also just for the, what I call career mental health. I really don't think it's going to be, it's a good idea for people to really torture themselves over why they lost, because I think nine times out of 10, it's because there was nothing you could have done anyway. I mean, like I said, if I really felt there was something we could have done differently, I mean, I will actually tell you, Zia, there was a, a deal that I lost when I was with you at Wipro, um, a large deal. And, you know, I would I would say we the one thing I would have done differently there is really insisted on a different team and a different group of people because the customer really just ended up not liking. You know, we had built a really good relationship within, you know, a, a local based team in the field. And when the big deal came, you know, all these leaders from different parts of the world came in and just declared this account their deal, too. And the customer just didn't like them. And we ultimately ended up you know, losing a deal we were told we were going to win when the RFP hit the street. So I would say that's maybe one thing I would say is, you know, really make sure your team that you have is the right team. But. Other than that, I, I I actually don't believe in torturing yourselves over why you lost. <laughs> so this is the reason I do this podcast, right, Rob? Because I get to f- hear and see different perspectives, right? So that's that's the best part. So Rob, you spoke about mental health, and that's that's obviously very important, right? So I would love to know from your side, um, you know, when you hit a slump or when 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 there is a down day, professionally, uh, how how do you handle that, Rob? What do you do? Yeah, well, and this is where I, I've changed. Initially, in the first 10 years of my career, I would just continue to just work harder and harder and harder and chase more and more deals. But what I found is a lot of those deals were not good deals to be chasing. I mean, when you look up in, you know, your territory is, you know, the fact of the matter is, is, you know, most of us have about 10 or 15 accounts in our territory. And, you know, there's going to be quarters where, no matter what you do and say, none of them are going to buy anything and you're going to be in a slump. And I think the first thing I would say is, is don't torture yourself because a lot of times in your panic, you end up wrapping yourself around a deal that's even going to be worse for you because it's, it's not a great deal and it has even a less chance of closing. 
And you'll look up after six months of chasing that deal and you may have missed the good one that came through. So I, I think when I'm in a slump, you know, I, I tend to just, you know, I'll focus on building my own skills. You know, I'll take trainings. I, I won't go crazy and chase a bad deal. You know, that, that'll be the week that maybe I tell my wife I can do all the kid pickup even. And, and I have actually found that I've been better where I, you know, when I get in the slump, I actually, it sounds crazy, but I actually work less. And, and what I do is make sure that I'm ready when the right deal comes. But um, the other thing that things about if you're in a slump is it's a good idea if you're able to see one coming. And like I said, if you know your territory, you know your customers well, you'll be able to predict that. And, and then what you do is you start messaging your leadership, you know, because they'll appreciate that. You know, one thing sales leadership does not like is being caught off guard to the negative. You know, if you, the worst thing you can do is go into a quarter telling your leadership, everything's going to be fine when it's not. I found I do the exact opposite. I tell it's going to be a disaster and don't expect anything because it usually ends up being the truth. So I'd say a couple of things you can do in related to that. But I think the main thing is again, from a, a lot understand if you know you're in this game as long as you have the it's really is a, a, a marathon and you know like any marathon there's going to be miles where you're just struggling and you just got to grind through it you know you go through it don't try to go around it don't try to fix it don't try to change it you just got to just time will always fix that song makes sense makes sense this is this has been great uh, rob so i have uh, one final question which is also very important in my opinion is okay. uh, so especially in 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 large accounts right um you know we, we all talk about uh, having coaches or champions or in, anything on those lines but when you start in a new account how do you go about identifying a coach for yourself and and then how do you invest or what, what do you do to build 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 a coach or champions in the account Yeah. Yeah. As far as identifying a coach, usually that's easy to do. It'll usually be someone who's either the owner of the project or someone who cares about the project the most. And then you start to think that maybe they like your company a little bit, or maybe they like you. And, and that I find usually presents itself pretty easily. The, but the, the thing that I think is most important about building a coach is you need to let them know that that's how your company is seeing them and you need to get an upfront commitment from them that they're okay being the coach. And then once you get that, then you got to coach them on how to be a coach. Because a lot of, you know, you know, customers, you know, they'll be fine with letting you call them their coach. They'll be fine with being the person that, you know, helps you and roots for you and things like that. But they won't always know what actual coaching stuff they can do with you. And so a lot of them is, you know, I coach them how to coach us, you know, say, this is the kind of stuff we're going to really need from you. This is where we're going to need you to stand up and support us. This is where we're going to need you to challenge us. This is where we're going to need, like, I was just coaching, you know, our friends over at, you know, the account in your, in your neck of the woods that I'm saying, you know, you, you need to, you know, type up an email to our leadership and let them know that, you know, we need to sign a contract because our competitors are. Because they're not going to do it until they believe that, you know, we really need to do this. And I had to just coach our coach to just write that email. And that's the kind of thing, like I say, you know, don't be afraid to coach your coach on how to coach you. So I think that's the big thing that I'd say I found is important with building coaching is, is a making sure that they're aware that you want them to be their coach and they're in agreement with it. But then, you know, really being specific on, you know, what coaching stuff they need to do with you. 
That's an awesome point, uh, Rob. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. So this this has been great. So Rob, I know TCS is a great company to work for. Uh, are you aware? Are you guys hiring? If you are, uh, what roles and what is the best way to reach out if if anyone is interested? Yeah, I mean we're always hiring. We are always looking for good salespeople. Um, I would say you can always reach out to me. Um, our you know our own company's website I know has Rex out there, although I hear that's kind of hard to navigate. Um, but I would just say start with me. Um, you could also look at any of the leaders, the sales leader types on LinkedIn. You know, they're all always hiring. I would not be afraid to connect with them on LinkedIn. You know, you just do TCS sales leadership on LinkedIn. You'll get all of them. And they're constantly, they, they actually do this themselves. Now, I know my boss does this. He, he's got tons of people he's connected with on LinkedIn for no other reason that he's thinking they might be potential sales candidates if a rec ever comes up. So I would say, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, you could call me first and I'll give you the names. And then I would say, you know, don't be afraid to connect with them on LinkedIn and, and, and start developing dialogue that way. But I think, um, you know, like I said, if you start with me, I can certainly find out who an HR is running the reps and, you know, things like that as well. But lately I'm finding though, a lot of sales leads with TCS are coming from recruiters that are connected directly to the hiring manager. So our HR department, I feel like is kind of removing itself from what I'll call the initial identification phase of candidates. They get involved, you know, in a certain level of the interview phase, but our HR department's less and less involved in the actual initial identification, identifying the resumes and stuff like that. Rob, uh, thanks for taking the time to join the call today. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. It was very fun. Anytime. Okay. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please do subscribe to the podcast and I will greatly appreciate if you can leave a review. If you have any suggestions for future guests or any feedback, please write to me at zia at sellingtoenterprises.com. See you on the next episode. Thank you.